Well, uh, why don't you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And my message this morning is, uh, is called Knowing God's Thoughts. Yeah, who, who would like to know God's thoughts? Yeah, who would like to know what God's thinking right now? Yeah, a lot of the time we want to know the direction for our life. Uh, I just want to know, I'm just interested to know what he thinks about things as well. Um, but the Bible actually gives you the promise that you can know the thoughts of God. So I'll, I'll get to that. But uh, 1 Corinthians 2. Um, and this uh, particular passage of Scripture really uh, was quite significant in my, uh, in, I guess you'd call it my personal charismatic awakening. Uh, so charismatics are like, you know, they're kind of the crazy Holy Spirit people. Um, the word comes from charis, which is the word for grace in the, in the, in the Greek. The word charis, so charismatic is those who are associated with the, 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 the grace of God, essentially the grace gifts of God. Um, and so we, we believe the Holy Spirit operates today in the same way that he did when Jesus was uh, walking the earth. Um, but this is something for me when I, I came in this season, and I'd come out of a season of, of being pretty uh, hardcore in my beliefs about certain things. I was uh, what they would call a, a Calvinist or, uh, you know, Reformed theology was my thing. And I think for me, I just found that I was, I didn't grow up in the church or anything like that, but I just found it was something I could really sink my teeth in um, theologically. And I was also um, kind of a young man, quite angsty and uh, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, whenever you find a, a theological stream that you almost feels like you're punching people in the face when you share the word, you you know, but, um, but thankfully, God um, expanded my horizons. Um, but this particular passage of Scripture was really a, um, one of the catch cries of this kind of theological stream, particularly where it talks about, um, I came and I, and I desired to know nothing amongst you except Christ and Him crucified. And so that was really the thing. But then when I, the Holy Spirit kind of encountered me and, and I was awakened to the, to the spiritual realm in a way, and then I came and I read this passage again. I was like, oh my goodness, this says almost the opposite of what I thought that it said. Um, so that's kind of crazy when that happens. So you can know the Bible really, really well. And yet you have those moments where Holy Spirit opens your eyes uh, to, to the deeper reality of it. But I'm just going to read, um, I'm going to break it down into a few parts. But it starts off and it says, uh, and I, that's talking about the Apostle Paul. And it says, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul comes to this people the first time. He's, as he's traveling around, he meets the, the Corinthian people, and he starts to share the gospel. And Paul is saying, as he's writing a letter back to them as a spiritual father, and he's writing back into that scenario and saying, when I came to you, you need to understand, I came in it in a way that was maybe different to other ways. And it's not to say that Paul was not eloquent, to be able to be eloquent in his speech, that he didn't have lots of wisdom and lots of good things to say. But Paul says, I came and I purposefully came in a particular way. Because my concern was that if I came in the way that maybe I you know, went to the Ephesians or the Galatians or different people, if I came to you in the same way and I presented the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God in the same way, that you would receive it in the wrong way and it wouldn't be beneficial to you. So the first little point I want to draw out to you is that he came sharing the testimony of God. As who here is called to share the testimony of God? Awesome. Three, four, five of you. Awesome, man. We've got some work to do. Now, I'll just put that down to lazy arms, okay? I've been worshipping for an hour, Brad, with my arms up. You know, give me a break. So we're all called to, to share the testimony of Jesus, to, to proclaim to people. But Paul says, I came not with lofty speech or wisdom. So a really important point to understand that eloquence is not a prerequisite for evangelism. Eloquence is not a prerequisite for evangelism. 
You can feel like, man, I don't know nothing. And I don't know these guys. And they just seem to spout Bible verses and they know all the ins and outs of stuff. And they got, you know, they carry around a mini Bible with them and they're just so crazy good at evangelism. And you might feel like, man, I don't know. I just fumble my way around stuff. I try remembering Bible verses and they just never stick. But Paul actually intentionally came to these people. So you need to know that eloquence is not a prerequisite for evangelism. So if you feel like I'm just not very good at sharing and talking about Jesus with people, that's okay. And it doesn't get you off the hook, I'm afraid. I'm sorry, but it doesn't. So don't try and outsmart people. Keep the message simple. So even when you're sharing the gospel with people, particularly if you're engaging with people who are quite intellectually clever in that kind of way, people with high IQs, Almost like Paul saying, you guys were really, really smart. You guys had a lot of natural wisdom. So I came like a dummy. I just came acting, bumbling around, like, because they didn't know Paul. You understand? Like, he's talking about the first time he came to encounter these people. So like, oh, Apostle Paul's here. Come and preach at our church, Apostle Paul. And he gets up, oh, you know, I don't know, you know, where's my keys? Like, this wasn't the case. They weren't Christians. So he comes, and you imagine encountering these people, and they're thinking, oh, well, maybe they'd heard stories about the Apostle Paul, this amazing you know, guy coming, and they're like, wow, this guy's really not that spectacular. <laughs> but what he did do, and this is the important part, you can keep it simple, but then rely on the Holy Spirit to reveal himself in power. That's the thing that they grabbed onto. Not how eloquent Paul was, not all of the wisdom that he could spout, but he came knowing, I'm just going to keep the message really simple. I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to talk about the fact that he died on a cross and rose again. And, you know, contained in the cross is obviously the resurrection. There is no new life without the resurrection. But I'm going to keep the message really simple. And then I'm going to demonstrate not the Holy Spirit's power, but the Holy Spirit and power. Do you understand there's two things that Paul came, not just the Holy Spirit's power, but the Holy Spirit and power. Paul demonstrated the reality of the Spirit of God, and he demonstrated the reality of the power of God. So and I think it's important that those two distinctions, because people can have an encounter with the Holy Spirit, and it doesn't seem powerful. It's not like their arm grows out or they get thrown across the room. Sometimes the most powerful encounters people can have is just that peace comes over them. That weight that they've been carrying all of a sudden lifts off. I love, and I wish, man, I wish that every single person that I prayed for just got totally whacked in the Holy Spirit, like thrown across the room and, you know, countenance changed and all miraculous, cool things. Their whole body's healed and they grow, you know, two feet taller and whatever it might be. But um, I've actually heard stories of supernatural weight loss, by the way. Just saying. Leaning in. Leaning in. And... uh, you know, like that, I, I, I would love for that to be the case. But when I do pray for someone, I'm like, God, just, just show them something. Give them some sense that you're real, that you're true, and that you're present. So the third thing that Paul says, he says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. So again, when it comes to evangelism and sharing the good news of Jesus, it's okay to do it scared. It's okay to do it scared. It's like, well, I'm scared to do it. It's like, again, that's not an excuse. (laughs) For Paul, that was the prerequisite. I came almost deliberately in fear and trembling. Now, again, there's fear of the message. And I'm not saying that he was like petrified of the people because he was intentional about what he was doing. Number four out of this little passage, it says, And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, which really says that they may not have even understood what he was saying. He's talking about basic stuff because for people in that culture, when you talked about, you know, I, I, I can't remember the scripture, but you can look it up later. But it says where, um, you know, the cross is foolishness and weakness. It's like foolishness to the Greeks and weakness to the Jews. It made no sense to the culture because they're like, well, if, if he's the Messiah, then surely he's, you know, from a Jewish perspective, well, he's coming and he'd be a kingly kind of role. He's coming to save the people in that way. Well, for the Greeks, they're like, what are you talking about? This guy, he, he, he was hanging on a cross. <laughs> like, do you understand what happened to your king, guys? You're not seeing it didn't look like victory to the rest of the world. And, the, and point number five, which I really, really love, is that we have been told that we shouldn't base our faith on experience. But Paul says that your faith might rest in the wisdom, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I came with a demonstration so that your faith would rest 
in all of the amazing things that I share to you, in my ability to expound the scriptures to you. No, in the demonstration of the power of God. You know, we get told that it's like we shouldn't, you know, rely on experience. You know, you just got to rely on the Bible, rely on the Word of God and stand on that. That's your thing. It's like, well, it wasn't for the Corinthians. Like literally Paul's primary evangelistic strategy to them was not to come and tell them all the amazing things that he knew and try to win arguments with them and win them over by going, wow, this Paul guy, he really knows what he's talking about. I feel like I can trust God because Paul's a trustworthy person because he knows the Scriptures better than I do. Paul's like, no, 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 I don't, I don't want you to rely on me. But I'm going to come and I'm going to show you the very reality of God. <laughs> Power encounter, Holy Spirit encounter. That was Paul's evangelistic strategy. Paul actually often will say the opposite. Um, this is not the only way we'll discover Paul's reasoning in 1 Corinthians 3. Because he says, again, we've got... Um, Paul approached different churches in different ways, but he intentionally came to the Corinthian church in this way. And the reasoning for is what we find in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy, interesting point from the other week, Jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So for me, I used to understand this, man, man we just got to preach Christ and Him crucified. That's the way to preach the gospel. Every Sunday, get up, preach Christ and Him crucified, Christ and Him crucified all the time. But then as I read through and I see, actually, Paul's not saying that. He's actually saying the opposite. He said, I kept the message so simple for you guys. And I came in a demonstration of the power of God and the Holy Spirit because I could see that you guys were infants. You actually couldn't handle more of the simplicity of that truth and the power of God. So we've been told that we must know the right stuff in order to know God. But the opposite was true for the Corinthians. Their intellectual capacity incapacitated them from being able to know God. Their intellectual capacity was actually the barrier for encountering the Father. And Paul knew that. So he changed tack. He said, I'm not going to come in the same way because I want to tell you, Paul could have run rings around them theologically. Philippians 3, 4 says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth, eighth day. I was a, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, so a studier of the law, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul comes in, he's got all the credentials to blow these people's minds with what he knew. And can you imagine going into an environment like that where all of your strengths now, <laughs> you lay down. All of the favor that you might find in the natural, you lay down. And you come, Paul's like, I, I came looking like a fool. But when the Holy Spirit showed up, you know, foolishness took a back seat. Just because someone is smart, and even for a Christian, just because someone can quote a whole lot of Bible verses, it doesn't mean they know God more. They may know about Him, but not know Him. Paul knew that they would lean into Him rather than God, so he took a different approach. They were intellectually smart, but spiritually dumb. <laughs> In the, in the natural, in the flesh, they, they knew everything. They were getting it right in that kind of way. But in the spirit, Paul's like, no, you guys just totally missed it. I don't know if you've ever had someone, even a Christian, that kind of encounter them and they start preaching at you. And, uh, or you hear someone talking and it's like, they've they got all the right words. Like they're saying all the right things. They're quoting these scriptures. They're like, yeah, I know that Bible verse and I think that what it, that's what it kind of means. And yet the heart behind it is kind of a bit skewered. 
You know, when we talk about prophetic ministry here, that's why we encourage people, particularly if you're prophetic, to get around shepherds because they're going to minister to your heart. They're going to awaken your heart. They're going to bring healing to your heart so that you can actually truly prophesy the word of God because you're prophesying the heart of God, not just the words of God, but the word of God because the word of God is living and active, sharpening the two-edged sword, dividing between the joints and the bones and the marrow and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's the word of God, not the words of God. Anyone can pick up a book, open it up, grab a scripture out of the Bible and speak it out. Are they speaking out the word of God? No, is that what God's saying right then to that person? That literally means that anyone can prophesy, Christian or not. Now, I know people can, you know, could hear from God and speak it out. I'm not saying that, but it's like, it's not mechanical in that kind of way. The Word of God is when God's speaking and you come into agreement with that and you speak it out. That is the Word of God, not just the words of God. When we only grasp the words of God and speak it out without demonstrating the heart of God, and that's what Paul was doing. He knew, man, like these people aren't going to get it. And he could have gone to the Corinthians and gone, I'm going to wow them with my wisdom, all that sort of stuff. But he knew they're going to follow me. And that will be no good for them. It kind, of, it kind of strips away that pride card that we could have, you know. Well, I went to Bible college and I did this and I did that and I know more of this and I read the Bible more, I've preached this many, whatever it might be. And coming up and then saying, and because of all of those things, you should listen to me or I've got something to say. Then what's going to happen is that people would start to follow us. You know, when we, what we do, even when we do prayer ministry, you know, deep kind of heart ministry, it's like, this is the Holy Spirit working on your life. This is not people. You can do the 48 hours of the Elijah House training and become a prayer minister. You can do an intern. You can do all of those things. I know when Sandra Selma Kirsten was here when we did the trauma training, and she's in part of her teaching, she's like, She's been doing it for years, trained under John and Paula Sanford, who created the whole Elijah House prayer ministry stuff. She says, every time I get up here to minister to somebody, every time I'm in that room, I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea where this is going. And if I think that I do, then I'm going to get in the way of the Holy Spirit. So it's always best to be in that place. And I think that can apply even to our evangelism when we're sharing the gospel with people, when we're ministering to people. Now, look, there is wisdom, and Paul even goes on to talk about spiritual wisdom, but always to be in that place where we rely on the Holy Spirit to show up. Because if He doesn't show up, then really they're only getting a taste of something. They're getting a description about God rather than encountering the reality of God, which is always far more better. More better. more better than my grandma <laughs> that's true that's it hey i'm not here with eloquent speech and uh, and wisdom <laughs> you know 1 corinthians 13 that's the that's the love passage but it talks about you the utilization of the gifts now it is a good description of how how we love one another it's often used in wedding ceremonies and all that sort of stuff it is good it's really truly the demonstration of god's heart but when it talks about in that in that passage you know if i have you know all the mysteries of heaven you don't have love you're just kind of making a noise so god understands and paul understood there's got to be more to it than simply speaking out the words so verse 6 of 1 corinthians 2 he says yet among the mature we do impart wisdom although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age that are doomed to pass away. But he says, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Okay, So really, really important here, and people can get all into kind of crazy theological things, even called Gnosticism, where we can find, no, there's this extra biblical kind of revelation that you need. You need, oh, it's not just the Bible, you need all of this extra spiritual, supernatural, because I had this encounter with an angel and he took me to heaven and we did this and did that, and we went on a bus ride and he told me all of these things, and you need this revelation about this part of God, okay? So I'm not talking about that sort of stuff. But there is a spiritual wisdom that requires you to be spiritually awakened and mature to engage with. But I, it's not extra-biblical revelation, it's intra-biblical revelation. So we've got a lot of Bible knowledge, but we don't necessarily have a lot of intra-biblical revelation. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now. I'm claiming it. 
That's it. That's it. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to win back my more better comment um, with some new words. So extra biblical meaning outside of the Bible, but I'm talking intra-biblical, like inside of the revelation that comes in the scriptures, digging deeper into that revelation. And that's the, that's the requirement of the Holy Spirit to even understand and, and comprehend these things. As we grow in spiritual maturity, that the, the word of God, the scriptures, the Bible gets awakened to us in a whole new way. And this is what happened to me when I read this passage. All of a sudden, I came out of one mentality. God opened up my vision. I'm like, oh my gosh, and I come back to the scripture again. It's like, now I get it. And I'm sure there's more to get, but I just got it in a whole new way. And it meant this completely different thing. Now, it didn't necessarily mean that before it was wrong. It just meant it wasn't maybe as spiritually mature as what I could have interpreted as. Amen. Intra-biblical revelation. Write that down. Um, make up a meme and uh, spread it around. That'll get you Instagram followers. Verse 7, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which he decreed before the ages for our glory. The Passion Translation says to bring us into glory, for our glorification. So this deeper mystery that God is revealing and exposing to those who are spiritually mature, so those who can grasp these concepts, is to bring us into a greater measure of his glory. And he's like, this is before, this is not new stuff. This is really, really, really old stuff that was hidden for ages. Paul talks about in Ephesians 3, how this, you know, this mystery that was given to him that wasn't even revealed through the apostles and prophets beforehand. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner on behalf of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, assuming that you had heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise through Christ Jesus. That's the one passage of Scripture that I have memorized really well. But that's what Paul's talking about here. This deeper, hidden mystery that was there was kind of buried under the apostles and the prophets. No one really got it. And all of a sudden, in Christ, it gets broken open. And not just through Christ, but then as the Spirit of God comes, it's like you can receive it now too. Amen? says, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not, not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the scriptures. No, oh, no, through the spirit, sorry. The thing he was listening or reading along. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person? So if we are body, soul, and spirit, that's one in 1 Thessalonians that talks about that. There's different ways. I don't know where the heart fits. I could draw it in a diagram, but it doesn't really make sense, and it's really simple and whatever. But all I know is we've got a spirit. We've got a soul. We've got a physical body. We've got a heart, and somehow they interact and interconnect with each other, and God exists there. But he says, no one knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person. So no one truly knows the deepest desires of your heart except for your personal spirit. So your mind doesn't comprehend it. This is why we can think a whole lot of stuff. If our mind comprehended the fullness of everything that we have received, there would be no repentance (laughs) There'd be no scriptures, there'd be no preaching, there'd be no need for revelation because we'd get it all. But repentance is the changing of the mind. So it's our mind coming and yielding to that reality of what God has done for us, the mysteries of God. But it's our spirit that truly understands us. And it says, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So in the same way that our personal spirit knows the depth of our thoughts, our hearts, our desires, our motivations, so the spirit of God knows all of that about God. He knows everything about God. So uh, your spirit knows the deep things of your heart in the same way the Holy Spirit knows the deep things of God's heart. And it's not just what we think or what He thinks, but the deeper motivations of our heart. Verse 12, and it says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, 
but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Amen. So Paul's talking about, you've got a spirit that knows all your thoughts. God's got a spirit that knows all of his thoughts. Guess what you've received? God's spirit. That you might understand the things freely given to you by God. Now, this is not a wisdom that we would receive that would exalt us, but it's a revelation of all that we are and all that we have in Christ. Understanding the fullness of that. Understanding the fullness of what we have in Jesus. Who here is getting a deepening revelation as they journey with God of what they have and who they are in Christ? Yeah? Amen. So we have received the one who knows the depths of God's heart and all of his thoughts. He literally lives in you. Wow. Blows me away every time. Kind of crazy. That we carry the Spirit of God. Verse 13, and Paul says, And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So again, there's a, he's Paul's talking about imparting these truths. But it's like spiritual, there's like a spiritual knowing. There's a spiritual receiving of these things. And it might be that your spirit receives something before your mind has any comprehension of it. Like salvation. Like righteousness in Christ. All of these deep truths, they're they're realities that God, because the Holy Spirit has become one with your spirit. The Holy Spirit and your spirit have come into oneness. In the same way, like a husband and wife come into oneness. And when there's oneness in that way, there's knowing. Okay, that's what the word means, to know God. Well, you know God in your spirit because your spirit and the Holy Spirit have come into oneness. So there's a knowing, a deep knowing within you. But it's the expression of that reality coming through in your mind, kind of grasping it, if it's possible too. But Paul's saying here, you need to understand that these are spiritual truths that can only be received by those who are spiritual, those who are awakened to the Spirit of God. So we can say, well, you know, when it comes to Holy Spirit moving and there's a stream in the church, it's called cessationism. It's a theological understanding that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, so the grace gifts, the movement of the Holy Spirit ceased after the time, essentially the writing of the Bible. They're like, well, we don't need the Holy Spirit. We've got the Bible. Um, Now they believe the Holy Spirit comes by salvation. Sorry, salvation comes by the Holy Spirit in that kind of way. But that everyday interaction with this Holy Spirit is not kind of a necessity. But what Paul's saying here is like, even if you get the Holy Spirit, if you don't give Him prominence and significance in your life, because it's not, the, the Trinity is not Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as Jesus said in the book of John, I will send the Spirit of truth and He will lead you into all truth. Now, man, we are so blessed to have the Scriptures, to have the Bible. We are incredibly blessed, not just historically in the time in history that would have it all put together, but that even as a country that would have access to that. There's plenty of places in the world where you can't even get a Bible. That's why people have to smuggle Bibles in. So we have it there, but that's not enough. It's got to be spiritually opened up. It's got to be spiritually received for it to truly make that deposit in your life to bring about transformation. It says, the person that does not accept the things, so the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Wow. You ever, have you ever had a conversation like that with someone? And you're talking about the Holy Spirit, and they're a Christian, maybe a, a, like a mature Christian, they know their Bible, and almost they look at you like you're a bit of a fool. Like, really? Praying in tongues. <laughs> that's, a bit, that's a bit weird. You know, like, Really? Paul did it more than anyone else. He desired it for everyone. That's 1 Corinthians 14. Me. I got off before I wrote anywhere on him. So that's my high horse, by the way. Um, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You know, when you're, you're listening and you read something, you hear a, a podcast or a sermon or you read something in the Bible and it just goes, bang, and you're like, whoa, that hit me deep. That's a spiritual discernment. That's like a spiritual receiving or something like, 
I feel like I don't even understand that, but I know that something was just deposited in me and it shifted something on the inside. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Amen. What is the mind of Christ? Did you get a brain transplant when you became a Christian? Oh, yeah. (laughs) He says, I wish. So what is the mind of Christ? The Spirit of God. So the one who knows all the thoughts of God is the, is the Holy Spirit. That's right. The one who knows all the thoughts of God is the Holy Spirit. And you have the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, if you have the one who has all of the thoughts of God, you therefore have the mind of Christ. You have all of the thoughts of God. You have the mind of Christ, which again, people can say, well, what I think therefore is, If I have the mind of Christ, and whatever I think, Jesus thinks. No. You have the Spirit of God, which knows all the thoughts of God, so it means whatever's on Jesus' mind is in you. But if you're not spiritually mature and growing in spiritual maturity, your ability to interpret the truth of God is hindered. John 5.39 says, You search the Scriptures. He's talking to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because they think they, that they give you eternal life. He says, but the scriptures point to me. So the Pharisees, these are the guys, they know their Bible. Or the Bible. They, they know the Old Testament. They didn't have the Bible, but they had the Old Testament. They knew the scriptures back to front. Before they were 12 years old, a Jewish boy would memorize the first five books of the Bible. Who's read the first five books of the Bible? <laughs> like, even once through. They memorized it memorize the first i know half of ephesians chapter three which i said before that's that's my longest thing that's a that's first five books that's an incredible amount of scripture to memorize as a child so they knew what they were talking about they knew their stuff and jesus says you search all through the scriptures and you think that because you understand the scriptures you have eternal life but the problem is you missed me in the whole, in all of your study, in all of your learning. That sucked to find out. What? We have the mind of Christ, which means you can know the thoughts of God. You can know God's thoughts. Is that a cool concept? Yeah? I can know what He's thinking. So God doesn't want us just to know about Him. But he wants us to know what he's thinking. He wants us to know the desires of his heart. But again, we can get caught in this place. I want to know about God. So I'm going to study the Bible to know about God. But unless I'm awakened in the spirit in that kind of way, and I'm pressing in in that kind of way, leaning into him to get to know him, I don't know the full, I know about God. But I want to know him. And even more than that, not just so I can, you know, who wants to know what God wants for their life? Tell me what to do. I've got this big decision in my life. What am I going to do, God? Where am I going to go? And we want to hear His voice. But God doesn't want to just tell you His voice or give you His commands so you can follow Him. He wants you to know His heart. He wants you to know His heart. You know, I think about like, a, like a, in a military context, that commanding officer, and he'll come out to the troops and he'll tell them, all right, we're going to this place, and we're going to battle in this way, you guys are going to flank in this way, and you're going to you know, shoot these people and do all that sort of stuff. You know? But no one's in the war room with him Figure out, but why are we doing that? Like, wh- why are we going over there? And why do you want these people to go in this direction? Like, fill me in. But we have the mind of Christ. We have that ability to know what he's thinking. And there's an intimacy that comes when you know what someone's thinking. If you're in a big corporation, you know, you could be at the, at, you know, at the bottom of the, the kind of ladder of the hierarchy and you'll get stuff sent down. You might get a memo email talking about something that's happening in the company but you're not in the boardroom helping to make that decision you're not in the boardroom hearing all of the ins and outs of stuff but it's as you move up the ranks that you get you know the ear of the higher powers you have the ear of the highest power (laughs) and not just that he hears what you say you hear what he says and what he thinks you get to participate in that way you know jesus only did what he saw the father doing 
So he sees the Father moving, but he also knew the heart of God. In such an intimate way, it's like, if, you, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He knew God so intimately. And that's why I think as well, when in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is praying to God, Father, if you know, take this cup from me. If there's any other way, but not my will be done, your will be done. So he's saying, Father, I want there to be another way, but I so trust your heart. I so trust your intentions that I'm willing to endure it because I trust you. Not just because you said, oh, okay, well, I'll do it then, but I hear what you're saying and I know your heart and that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to follow. I think that works, you know, even in a, in a relational kind of context with people. Sometimes you'll be like, you know, well, I don't want to do it. Like you hear someone say, can you do this? Well, I don't want to. Or I'm inter- misinterpreting maybe what you're saying, but I know your heart. And I trust your heart. So I'm going to follow your heart because I know you. And the Lord wants to bring us into that place where we start to know his heart. And we, and we behave then in ways that align with his heart in a natural way. You know, Paul, when he's out on his uh, missional, missionary journeys in Acts, and it talks about they went from place to place, and there was a place he was going to come into, and the Holy Spirit stopped them, prevented them from going in. But Paul didn't ask, God, can I go to this place, and then God, can I go to this place? He just went, because he already knew not only what God had told him to do, to take the gospel to the nations, to be the apostle to the Gentiles, but he also knew the heart of God for every person that none would perish, but all would be saved. He was motivated not just by listening and obeying, but by the heart of God, the very heart of God to go to all of those places. And when you know the heart of God, you'll go far more places than if you just know the commands of God. Otherwise, you'll only listen when you want to hear. But when you know his heart, it's like, well, I'm compelled to go, Father. I'm compelled to speak to this person because I know where your heart is for them. But that motivation to move when God wants you to move is not just like, oh, okay, God, I'll do it. Because you're asking me, it's like, Father, there's nothing else I'd rather do. Because not just now do I know your thoughts and I know your heart, but Father, my heart is being transformed to be like yours. So now not only am I thinking, well, that's what God wants to do. It's like, that's what I want to do. Ha <laughs> That's what makes, if you want to make an easy pathway to follow God, get his heart. Let him transform your heart to be like his heart. So then when those situations come up, and it's like, God, there's, I want to go there. You just try and stop me, Holy Spirit. Why that person, I want to tell them about Jesus. You stop me, Holy Spirit, if you don't want me to do it, because I'm going. Because I know your heart is for them to hear the gospel. And that's what Paul did. It's like, we're heading into a place. Oh, Holy Spirit stopped us. Okay, we'll, we'll move on to the next place, you know. I'm not saying Paul didn't hear from God and tell him to, to go to specific places, but there was something of being drawn and directed by the heart of God. So when it comes to making a decision in your life, it's like, well, what do I do? It's like, well, what's your heart, God? Not just what are you telling me that's going to alleviate the fear of making a mistake. Well, if you fear of making a mistake before God, maybe it's because you don't know his heart. <clears throat> if you feared if that he's going to tell you off or punish you or your destiny is going to be destroyed because I made one wrong decision because I didn't pray for long enough or I didn't fast that one time when I had a decision to make as to do I do this job or that job and now God's just thrown up. Well, you didn't listen to me. You didn't hear and obey. So you're out. I'll move on to the next person. But if I know his heart, it's like, well, Father, I feel like you're wanting me to go over here and I'm just going to trust you, God, because I know you're good. And I know you're working out all things for my good because I love you. So even if I make a bad mistake, well, God, I'm just glad that you're with me in it because you can sort it out. Now, that doesn't make me flippant. That makes me a lover. (laughs) That doesn't make me irresponsible. That makes me a lover of God. That makes me one who carries his heart, who cares about what he cares about, that knows the desires of his heart. When we know God's heart, we act out of obedience to his desires and not just his command. Love always precedes obedience. Love always precedes obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Very important. You cannot love God by obeying his commands. You cannot love God by obeying his commands. You can obey his commands by loving him. (laughs) There's an order to that, and there's always that. We can't, well, God, I'll I'll show you that I love you. We either do or you don't. God's not fooled by your works. You can't trick God and think, well, well, 
I can see that person's heart, and in their heart, there's a whole lot of idolatry and things that they're putting before me, but they're early every week to church and they read their Bible. They must really love me. Got him, yeah. Yeah, Dodge that bullet, Lord. I knew that religious spirit will come in handy at some stage. You can't, it's, it's either in there or it isn't. But again, as we're growing in spiritual maturity, as we're leaning in and we're, and we're getting to know the Holy Spirit, we're getting to know His thoughts and His desires and His heart. And again, I'm talking, there's a whole lot of other stuff in terms of doing the heart journey. So we're dealing with that, which is counter to God. If we have judgments against who God is, if we have inner vows about all of that sort of stuff, you know, there's the heart journey part of that. But I'm kind of just drawing this specific line in terms of knowing God by the Spirit. So not knowing who God is obviously will affect our ability to know His thoughts because we can have assumption then. You know, who's here has ever judged someone in their life? Yeah? So you judge them. You don't need to point out who. Yeah, I've judged people before. No, no, I've I've never judged you. I love you. (laughs) So it's like I've judged people. And then you had that moment where you judge then their behavior because you've judged their heart. You judge their behavior as being something. Yeah, who's done that? Yep, yep. And then, maybe because of confrontation or you find out somehow, that actually wasn't their heart. But you made an assumption about their desire, about what was in their heart, because you'd made a judgment against them. So you'd locked them into a particular way of thinking. This happens with God. So we judge God because we don't know His heart. We don't know His thoughts or or, or His intentions because we're spiritually immature and we're growing in that. But if we have a judgment, then I'm locked into a perspective about who God is and what God thinks, and how God feels. Well, of course He's going to do that, because that's the sort of God that He is. Of course He's going to let me down, because I've judged Him as being a God that lets me down. That's a whole other sermon. But dealing with those sorts of things, so it's important that we, I'm not talking about disregarding the heart, and stepping into this kind of fruity, supernatural, spiritual thing here that has no grounding in reality. They partner together, but there is something that once we get that stuff healed and sorted out, it, it enables us to step into that deep reality of understanding his thoughts, hearing what he thinks, and not even just assuming that, but knowing it because he's telling us. Thank you. So we cannot know God's thoughts unless we become spiritually mature. And God has these mysteries to reveal to us. It's our inheritance in Christ. These truths, these realities, these mysteries. And they're there to be pursued. God loves the pursuit. God loves to be pursued. Yeah? Are there any ladies in the room? Anyone? Yes. Out of the ladies who loves to be pursued by either their husband or by, if you're single, by a man. Like if you're in that thing. Yeah, anyone? No? Yep, okay, good, we're, we're, we're here, we're alive. Yep, I'm just saying that as well for the benefit of the husbands. But uh, there's something in there, and I want you to know that God has feminine traits, okay? He has that desire, He loves to be pursued, He loves to be wooed, yeah? He loves that, He loves to do it to us as well. He loves to pursue us. He loves to woo us, to draw us in, to awaken our heart in that kind of way. But God loves it back. He loves to be loved on. Anyone agree? Give me an amen. Something to go on here. Yeah. The greatest commandment, love God with every part of your being. Do you understand how crazy that is that the God of the universe would put that on us as an expectation? Okay, Lord, but what's the, what's the number one thing that we can do with our lives? Love me. Okay, but like, there must be something like significant that you want me to do with my life to show you that I'm, how awesome I think you are. Love me. That's crazy. That's a, that's a crazy God. You know, you understand what I mean, Lord. You know, and these mysteries that he wants to reveal. And now someone might say to you, um, well, isn't that the Bible? That's all the mysteries and all that sort of stuff. I'm like, yeah, it is. That's part of it. What's revealed in the scriptures, that's the mystery of God written down. Because Paul's, you know, he's writing 
Paul didn't write a textbook to the Corinthian church. He didn't write, okay, I've got to, I'm putting a teaching together, guys, and I'm just going to send it to you. Paul wrote a letter as a spiritual father to his spiritual children, correcting and directing their lives in this way. But to understand that, just the Bible alone is not sufficient for you. Because the Bible, without the Spirit, is dead. The Spirit brings life. And that's that verse I read before, John 5, 39. That's what the Pharisees, that's what they were locked up in. They knew the word back to front, but they missed Jesus. It's a sad place to be. I'm like, my heart is burdened because I know what it's like to be like super theology nut case. Some of you knew me back then. I literally, I used to, I used to do exposit, so expository preaching is when you take like a passage of scripture and you draw out all of the, the things, you go into the Greek, you do all that sort of stuff and it's real, you know, theological things and you're getting into, then you're exegeting the passage, you're doing all this kind of crazy stuff, right? So I used to do that when I preached many years ago. Um, but the context of that was in a youth group with teenagers. I would preach for like over an hour. And I said, okay, well, Ephesians 3, we're going to open up and we're going to cover Ephesians 3, half a chapter 1 tonight. And I think, and I, I, they, they stuck around, some of them. So there must have been something. Thank you, Jesus, for filling the gaps. But you know what I mean? Like, I know what it's like to be in that place. And I loved God, but I didn't know Him until I encountered the Spirit of God. And all of that suddenly made sense. All of that suddenly came to life in me. So how do we access the mind of Christ, the thoughts and intentions of God's heart? Well, I think it is important that we know the basics. Even for Paul, he's saying, and this is for maybe for you or for somebody else. It's like, get to know the basics. Read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Get to know who Jesus was and what he did and what he spoke over your life and what he called you to. Read those things, but not just the basics. Know the Holy Spirit and his power. Press in for encounters with God. Ask people around. If you know that people that are spiritually mature, go to them and say, can you just pray for me? Can you pray for the gift of tongues? Can you pray for the release of spiritual gifts? Can you just pray that I would encounter God? Can you pray that I'd feel His peace? Like experiential engagement with God. Because that's going to awaken you to step and to lean further into those realities. Number one. Number two, press into spiritual maturity. Pursue righteousness. So the pursuit of righteousness brings us into a greater place of maturity. This is Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness. So Paul's saying all of the other stuff you're worrying about in your life, your job, your home, money, your car, whatever. It's like put that stuff over here in my hands. You focus on seeking first my kingdom and righteousness. And now again, I've, I've done a, a full sermon on this, but I do think there's times where even in the Christian walk where we, we pursue unrighteousness in terms of, well, we, we try and get out of unrighteousness. So like I look at my life and there's, it's riddled with sin and I'm slowly moving towards a place where I'm getting rid of sin. I'm letting go of the baggage. I'm getting to this point where I'm like, ah, I feel good. I don't feel like I have any mortal sin that's going to send me to hell. I mean, I'm... I've made the middle kind of ground here. I'm quite, I'm comfortable now. Yeah, I can go along to, uh, you know, to a gathering on a Sunday, not feel super guilty because of what I did last night. And I'm like, cool, I'm good. Okay. That's not the pursuit of righteousness. The pursuit of righteousness, when I find some sort of neutral common ground, is then I go, okay, now I'm going this way. <laughs> Fullness of righteousness, because that's my inheritance. I'm going to press in. I say, oh, but that sin doesn't really affect anyone. It's only like sometimes thing. It's not really, you know, well, I know I don't fully, you know, believe that God is good, but, you know, well, I'm, I'm kind of okay in life. That's not the pursuit of righteousness. The pursuit of righteousness is the fullness of Christ. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that it talks about in Ephesians 4. Going into that deeper place and say, if there's anything in my life, Father, that would inhibit me from encountering you, I want it gone. I want it dealt with. I want it renewed. I want it restored. I want that part of my heart reconciled to you. Because all of those things inhibit intimacy. But I do think that we've come from you know, several generations where it's almost like just avoid sin at all costs. Just avoid sin, whatever you do. But God's heart is... 
it's not about avoiding sin, it's about pursuing righteousness. And I want to tell you, when you pursue righteousness, you'll leave sin behind and you'll deal with those things. But there's this ferocity. And again, well, why would I pursue righteousness? Because it leads you into intimacy. It leads you into the heart of God. It leads you deeper into that place of connection with Him. And when we long for that, not just, I'm trying to avoid hell with my life. You know, people, Christians, who are just like, I'm trying to avoid hell. That's, that's my bet, man. If I just make it through the door, by the skin of my teeth, if I just make it through those pearly gates, I'm good, I'll be good. I feel like I've succeeded in life and in Christianity. Like, man, because we haven't been awakened to the intimacy with God. But as we're going on this journey, it's like, man, there's so much more. So it puts then, oh, man, but the struggle, I've really I've got to deal with that stuff. Like, yeah, but the fruit of what comes from dealing with that is far greater than any blessing or false blessing that might be coming from the sin that you're trapped in. Any comfort, any, you know, anything that gets in the way of God, it's a bondage that keeps you trapped. So even though a present sin or area of brokenness in your life might not be destroying you, it's inhibiting your ability to intimately engage with God. But again, this is something where if your heart's stirred towards it, if you encounter Him, because you encounter the reality of the Holy Spirit, not just a theological engagement with the Scriptures, but I've encountered God, everything has changed, and I want more of that. And not just more oh, like nice kind of moments with God. You know, I said this uh, the other day um, to someone, but it's like, you know, we, we, we love it when the presence of God comes. Oh, we're in worship. Oh, the presence of God has come. And people, they're all about the presence of God. Oh, we love the presence of God. And we press in for the presence of God. And I'm like, man, it is so good when the presence of God comes. But it's even better when He stays. That's your inheritance. It's not to go from one encounter to the next encounter, but it's to live in that place of encounter. It's to live in that place of intimacy. It's the everyday reality of God. That's what belongs to you. Amen? Amen. Point one, know the basics and experience His power. It's press into righteousness. And my third point I just got was just lean in. <laughs> Leaning doesn't take any effort. You just got to just lean in. Lean into God. Lean into Him. When you're at work, just lean into God. Even just imagine, picture yourself just leaning in. I'm just, I'm just leaning towards you, Lord. Don't strive for it. Don't, you know, like get all your, I'm going to try really hard. Because if there's a negative motivation there, then it ain't going to work. But leaning, just, just topple over into God. Amen?